My name is Eric Nelson. I'm a film director, documentary director and producer whose most recent film is called Apocalypse 45. It's an immersive look at the last uh, year of fighting in the Pacific theater in World War II. We were all Americans. We had a strong belief in this country. If I could do it again, I would for this country. I love this country. They told us that they were very vicious people, that for them to die was an honor. They were not going to give up. We were thinking about saving our asses. <laughs> yeah, that's true. One guy lost his foot, and he was the happiest guy in the world because he said, I'm getting off of this island. They didn't care about us. They were there to sink the ships. They had balls. Oh, they had plenty of sake. Either one. Accurate, very accurate. If you picked the target and you fired with the rocket, it's going to hit whatever you aim for. I like rockets, no problem at all. I saw Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and I was absolutely surprised and astounded. That was like you were carrying a load and all of a sudden you dropped it off and you were completely free. It's been said many times by many people that war is hell. But I never visualized hell being that bad. That is the trailer for the documentary Apocalypse 45, coming soon to Discovery. And this is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, a London-based production company making documentaries about America for international audiences. Uh, today we're talking about America's greatest generation, those who survived the Great Depression, fought in the Second World War, and literally saved the world. Uh, to discuss a key chapter in the story through breathtaking, never-before-seen footage is the acclaimed director, Eric Nelson. Eric, welcome to Factual America. How are things with you? No, good. We're sitting here, what, 6,000 miles away? You're in London, and I'm here in the People's Republic of Santa Cruz on a bright, sunny day. <laughs> yes, the banana slugs. Isn't that the mascot for UC Santa Cruz? Go slugs. I'm a, yeah. proud, alum I'm a proud alumni of UC Santa Cruz. <laughs> well done. Um, well, as, uh, as listeners, viewers uh, who are watching this on YouTube will know, the, uh, the film is Apocalypse 45. You've introduced it actually already. Uh, we understand it's coming soon to Discovery, but do we know when yet? Because I know a lot of people are curious. Yes, it's coming to Discovery Plus uh, May 27th, just in time for Memorial Day, which is a very fitting time for the film considering the subject matter. Yeah, indeed. And that's, that's great news because um, if you do even just a little search on the internet, you see a lot of people wanting to know when is this going to it's come out. It's interesting. Yeah, there is a lot of, because uh, we had a theatrical, uh, a, a virtual release in August, September. Yeah. So enough, there was enough writing about it. And then by the time people really started tumbling to it, uh, it mm -hmm. disappeared. So we're looking forward to making it available. Okay. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast, and uh, it's great to have you on, as, and also as, as an American citizen, though based here in the UK, but let me thank you for making this film. I think this is quite, 
quite incredible. Um, now you gave us, well, you gave us at least a log line, I think, in your intro, but what, maybe you can give us a bit of a synopsis of uh, what this film's about. In the final year of World War II, uh, in the Pacific in 1945, uh, much of the combat at extremely close quarters was captured on color film. Uh, for some reason, the war in Europe, it was tougher to get color film over to Europe, but it was not difficult to get it to uh, Marine and Navy photographers. So an astonishing amount of color footage was filmed of that last year in the war. So I took that footage from the National Archives and restored it uh, very, very meticulously to 4K and widescreen and created a 90-minute immersive uh, deep dive into the war, but only through the images and the off-camera, off-camera voices of 24 men who were involved in the war. And I mean, I think you've sort of at least alluded to this already, but uh, why did you focus on this particular part of the war? Well, the obviously the uh, tail that wagged the dog or the dog that wagged the tail is yeah. the uh, you know, the last year of the war, they got better and better at shooting and the better and better cameras were out there. Also, it allowed me to encapsulate a harrowing story of that uh, January to September when the surrender was signed in Tokyo Bay. And the film was originally theatrically released to time with the 75th anniversary of that conflict. And frankly, uh, with the polarization in the United States and the sort of fragmentation of uh, our, our norms as a country, I felt it appropriate to do a film that was truly purple, that no one <laughs> on either spectrum could have any disagreements with. And uh, in, it's very tough now to do a documentary of any topic or subject without stepping on the third rail of American polarization. Uh, yes, having uh, interviewed a, a few of your colleagues, I, I'm, a, I'm aware of uh, and watching quite a few docs, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that fact. Um, and I think we can talk a little, uh, we'll maybe get to that a little bit more uh, a bit later in our discussion, because I thought it was very interesting, um, some of the things that some of the um, uh, people had to say um, in, in the film. Um, now, you mentioned you had this footage. How did you, I mean, this, this stuff was at the National Archives, right? I mean, how did you find out about this stuff? Well, I've known about it since, not to betray my age, uh, the first project I did with this film was in 1985, uh, when I literally had to go to its original repository, which is Norton Air Force Base in San Bernardino, and get film cans and put them on a flatbed to look at some of the footage. So I was aware of this material, uh, so it's always been sort of nagging at me. And a few years ago, I did a film called The Cold Blue, which was uh, a, another immersive I call it Koinosquatsi with B-17s that took William Wyler's footage yeah. from the Memphis Bell and turned it into sort of this tone poem of uh, aerial combat. So I developed a relationship with the National Archives and I knew about this footage. So there's sort of an inevitability about doing the second film. Uh, I like to think of this film is to the cold blue, what the Godfather part two is to the Godfather part one, where it takes the, the style, the director, the approach, mm -hmm. and kind of deepens it and goes deeper, longer, and wider. That's interesting. But you don't have to watch The Cold Blue before watching this film. Oh, not uh, at all. No, not like The Godfather, no. You, uh, you, there's no Luco Brazzi in this film. But <laughs> the it, it, great minds seem to have been working at the same time. When I premiered The Cold Blue, uh, Peter Jackson was finishing up uh, They Shall Not yeah. Grow Old, which came yeah. out uh, about six months later. And then Apollo 11 came out. So it's interesting that three filmmakers had the same simultaneous idea of big screen restored history with only audio underneath it, no, no, no mm. breaks. So there seems to be a certain inevitability to this format. So, uh, you know, it's... Uh, so. And, and it's pre-COVID too. I mean, right, for, for most of the... No, it's, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't. We finished yeah. the last shoot in Staten Island, which was not a yeah. hotbed of COVID, uh, February 26th. Yeah. We got our last footage out of the National Archives in mid-March when things were really starting to uh, deteriorate. Yeah. And the National Archives closed one week later and it's still not reopened. Uh, it, it would literally be impossible to do this film today. It's amazing. If I gather there was... Uh what, 700 reels? Uh, that well, there's a massive amount of material. We, yeah. uh, we narrowed down 
I, you know, literally countless reels to 140 that we deemed worthy of transfer. So we took them off campus out of the National Archives to a film transfer laboratory and used, uh, I won't go into the technical details, but went from the yeah. raw film to uh, actually not 4K, 6.5K, and then uh, did one pass of restoration and then made the movie. And once the film was done and locked, we went back and meticulously did what, did what we had to do to the 90 minutes of final footage. And, and how many, I mean, how many hours of footage did you have to go through and, and work with? Oh, I don't know, 140 reels times 15 minutes. I don't know what that breaks down to. A lot. That's a, that's a lot. It's uh, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I went through all of, you know, all of it and picked the selects and sort of went through it. This isn't the first, I mentioned the cold blue. This, in a strange way, there's a through line to my work, starting with the film Grizzly Man, which I produced in 2005, which was a film based on a director, another director's work. In, in essence, it's the making of a movie with footage filmed by Timothy Treadwell. Mm. And then I did a film called Gray State in 2017, which was another documentation of a death spiral of a conspiracy nut who went too far down the rabbit hole, culminating in the murder-suicide of his family. Real cheery, fun ride there. <laughs> then The Cold Blue, which took William yeah. Wyler's footage, and now this film. So there's kind of a con, uh, I won't say I have a brand, but there's something about taking uh, footage that was filmed perhaps for a different purpose and reversioning it and telling a different story with it. You bring up, a, up an interesting point. So how did this footage come about? I mean, were cameramen embedded with, with yes. these units? Yeah. yeah, in fact, there we have footage in the very beginning of the film shot in Tarawa in 1943, where uh, FDR specifically said, we want, I want you as the President of the United States to film this battle and I want to bring home the cost. So there's footage that was never shown during the war, but there's footage of uh, a few American bodies mm. uh, on a sandy beach, which no one had really ever seen before. Uh, some World War II historians I was working with had never seen this before, but yeah. it was part of Roosevelt's commission. So they had cameramen embedded on the flight deck of aircraft carriers as kamikazes are heading straight at them. And these guys are continuing to film. Our Iwo Jima footage, a, lot, a good deal of that footage was filmed by a cameraman who was killed on Iwo Jima. He was sealed up in a cave alive. He was wounded and they had to seal the cave with him in it. And his body has never been found. So men literally died to make this footage. And it's not only harrowing combat, but there's some very Quototian other details in the mm. film that to me are equally as powerful and we had to balance balance yeah. the material well yeah so as you point out i mean i think it's uh, we haven't mentioned yet but there's even some john ford footage isn't there at the uh, yes that's yeah. that was a that was the big discovery that uh, john ford who was the zealot of early world war ii he was yeah. on the flight deck of the hornet when the doolittle raiders launched then he went back to pearl harbor and while he was at pearl harbor before he went to midway he filmed uh, some footage for his buddy, Greg Toland, Greg Citizen Kane photographer Toland, mm. and best year of ours out of lives, William Wyler, yes. uh, I might mention. But he picked up some footage for a Pearl Harbor film that Toland was doing. Some of that footage appeared in Toland's documentary in black and white, but we discovered the raw color camera loads, which was a real revelation. No one's seen that stuff before. It's amazing. I mean, but. Yeah, William Wyler, uh, John Ford, but then, but most of these guys were just these cameramen. Most of these guys were just yeah, army unsung. cameramen, and their job was to get right in the front lines. If I'm, you know, we can say it right in the right in the middle of the shit and keep yeah. filming. Yeah. And uh, so this film is dedicated to them uh, as well. It should be because uh, they captured some extraordinary images and bits and pieces of this stuff has been seen in every World War II documentary ever made. Yeah. But what we did was we were on a different hunt. We were looking for a different tone, a different feel, and a different kind of approach. So this is not a World War II documentary. This is not something traditional. It's really trying to do something. You know, I, we were hunting di different, we were hunting bigger game, if you will. Yeah. I have to agree with you. So there was a, you know, there, there might be a snippet here and there that I, I think I remember. Maybe I've seen that little bit, you know, before, like you said, it's been in every World War II doc. But uh, what struck me is besides being all in color, 
So, you know, if, if you're of a certain age growing up in the United States, you have this view of World War II and it's all black and white and, and whatever. But it, I, thought, I thought I was watching Vietnam War footage. Well, you that's know, it. You know, it has you know. the same level of immediacy as the Vietnam War footage, which again has been used before. But what usually happens up to now in World War II documentaries, it's either used in black and white, it's never used widescreen. If it is mm -hmm. widescreen, it's squashed and vague. But through mm -hmm. 4K, we finally have the technology to make it sharp, put it in widescreen without any loss of material. And also, again, the approach, we're not trying to tell, uh, now this happened and now this happened and now we're going to see this. It's very much an impressionistic, the Koinesquatsi idea from the cold blue sort of hung over mm -hmm. into this to some degree. And I have to say, I mean, to the listeners of yours, and, I, and this is not meant to put, put anyone off of film, it's not easy watching some of it. I mean, this is war. I mean, this is very realistic, I think, in a way that I've never seen with regards to the Second World War, certainly. Well, that's it. it. It is. And those are the images that were censored. These guys kept rolling and they saw this. We went from their raw film reels. So they're respectful. You know, they don't, yeah. there's not a lot of footage of American dead, but there are some shots which we used. And there's a lot of material we didn't use. Uh, believe me, there's some things that were truly, I, I was really shocked that they were filming some of this stuff, especially the, uh, the Japanese civilians throwing themselves off the cliffs. There's a lot of footage that we didn't use that we just pulled back. And this is, we refer to it in the film as a war without mercy. There was a real high degree of dehumanization. It was a absolute total war, racist, uncompromising, both sides. And there yeah. was no quarter given, no quarter asked. And that's a part of this story too. And the vets we talked to in their 90s, which are obviously yeah. such an important component, they still, quote unquote, go there. You know, so you're there. This isn't a film that tries to be politically correct because that's not, that's not yeah. a part of it. And again, this film sort of exists outside the vortex of traditional documentaries that are being made. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't really fit in any particular genre uh, of, of quote unquote uh, feature docs that go into theaters or go onto yeah. streaming services, which is why Discovery really deserves uh, a huge amount of props for funding this and for enabling it to be made yeah. i'm glad <laughs> that's a good point and uh give a shout out to discovery because i must admit when i saw this hat after i watched it and then saw that it hasn't been released i was like maybe they're having second thoughts because this is this is i think it's quite brave to put this on well um, it is it's an adult yeah. portion but you know with discovery yeah. plus launching now they've, they've stepped into big time into the streaming arena and they, they're, they're extending their brand and this film takes that brand one step further because it is real, it is a documentary, it is true to, re, you know, it is true. Yeah. And Discovery is always, has, has, has a long history of uh, creating, enabling uh, great documentaries. Grizzly Man was originally done for Discovery and Encounters at the End of the World, which uh, got an Oscar nomination for Werner mm -hmm. back in 2008. That was a, a commission for Discovery. So I go way back with Discovery. Well, well uh, again, thanks again, Discovery, for uh, getting this out. Because I, I was even going to, you, you've already said it. I mean, I was going to ask you if you had to hold back at all. Because, I mean, some of these, uh, you know, we don't, I think of, of any doc that I think I've watched recently that we've discussed on this program, this is one that I'm especially not going to go into too much discussion or detail about the actual film itself in terms of the, the story and what you'll see. Because I think, one of the what's I found personally so powerful was not knowing what I was getting into when I watched this thing and watching it unfold uh, and realizing, you know, that this is all real footage and just vivid and real life. And it's like straight out of uh, in your living room type stuff from the Vietnam War, which I'm sure some of our listeners will think is a really long time ago. But uh, even there, I mean, that is there's always been sort of this disconnect I always felt like between everything pre-Vietnam was a kind of a different conception of what war was like. And then we have Vietnam and everything. Well, Vietnam was, you know, allegedly the first televised war. Yeah. You know, it was the war that was brought into here, the living room wars, they call it. Yeah. And World War II kind of wasn't, but actually it was. It was just that there was no place to use this footage. Yeah. And in 
quote unquote traditional World War II documentaries from victory at sea to yeah, yeah. world at war, those are in black and white. And there was a certain amount of censorship involved with, with can we show this, should we show this? But this, this film is by no means faces of death and I don't want anyone to think yeah, yeah, it, exactly. the, it isn't. And no. it could have been, uh, but, and I think the reason Discovery didn't you know, I think there was a bit of shell shocked them when they first saw it. But the reason that we did so few editorial changes was we were respectful. We were careful. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And one last, well, not last thing, but one thing I wanted to ask you then is, uh, and then we're going to take a little break here for our listeners. But uh, I mean, you already said you were kind of aware of this since some of this, at least since 1985. Um, did you... I mean, what did you think when you first started watching this? I mean, did anything really surprise you? No, just that, oh my God, this exists and how come it hasn't been used properly? Yeah. To be honest with you, I've, I've always known that uh, having done just more traditional World War II documentaries, a number of them for Discovery, some for the History Channel, some for National Geographic, mm -hmm. I've, I've always tried to push the boundaries, but I've never was able to make a film that really got it before so i've been aware of it but yes i in by being able to go into the 140 reels and look inside the reels and notice oh my god look at that look at mm -hmm. this you know one of the scenes that's most powerful for, for for me and if you've seen the film you'll know what it is it is not you know kamikaze smashing into flight decks or the ruins of hiroshima it's a traumatized American soldier coming out of the mud holding a white rabbit. Mm. That to me is the, you know, if I had to say, if someone said, well, director's message, I would say that shot with what the veteran is talking about behind it. I, I completely agree. I was about to say, because I, I remember what that veteran was talking about when in that, that scene. And I think, uh, I think that's a very good point. Uh, let's have a quick break and we'll be right back uh, with uh, Eric Nelson, the uh, director of Apocalypse 45. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with Eric Nelson, acclaimed director, producer, and writer. Uh, you've got a filmography that uh, we could spend the rest of the podcast uh, just listing. But uh, today we're talking about Apocalypse 45 coming soon. What was it? May 27th? May 27th, yes. Uh, uh, and for those, that, we have a lot of listeners in the U.S. And so that's uh, Memorial Day weekend. So um, we were one... We were talking about this incredible archival footage that you've, the National Archives gave you access to and that you've restored uh, lovingly. Um, but was there sound with the footage? No, and that, that like the cold blue, uh, that was very challenging. Uh, all of the sound in the film was uh, laid in. Uh, our sound designer, David Hughes, uh, is, I didn't know this when we started working together, but it turns out he's a serious guy. And the film he did before The Cold Blue, which he did was a Black Panther. He was the sound, yeah. sound designer of that film. So he has an incredible uh, ear and an access to an incredible library of uh, materials. So I think he slums working with me, but he did an extraordinary job along with our editor, Paul Marengo, who did yeah. a lot of the sound editing as well. So every, a bit of sound and then it's wedded with the music uh, from our composer Mark Leggett. So mm. it's, it's 360 degree designed to be seen and heard in a big theater. And I haven't spoken to Discovery yet, but assuming theaters are starting to open again, uh, we're hoping yeah. we can have some big screen showings in big venues because this film is designed uh, to be seen on a, the biggest screen possible whether it's in a movie theater or on your home screen. Uh, and that's what's great again about a streaming service, no annoying commercials. Mm -hmm. You just turn it up and turn it up and go. Yes, I, I look forward to seeing this on a big screen. Uh, I can also attest to the fact that on a laptop with a pair of headphones, it works well it, it also, but uh, I can only imagine. And the, the, that's another thing that struck me was, you know, I'm, so I obviously read the blurb. I know there's this footage that's never been seen and it's been restored. And then, but then to also hear the, the sound that came with it, which I thought was quite, uh, 
quite effective. How do you go about assembling the story? Because you've got this footage and then... Well, you know, there's two tracks. There was the footage, which I knew, and I knew what we had. Mm-hmm. And I'm enough of a, a, a military historian that I knew kind mm-hmm. of the sequence. It was clear that it should be told chronologically, but in chapters to fit the footage. And then I did uh, with my colleague, Peter Hankoff, we, the two of us, just a crew of two, drove, went across the country in four separate trips to interview the guys. They don't come to you, you go to them. Old age homes, their homes, hollers in West Virginia. And because I knew in the back of my mind what the footage was, and I knew what I wanted them to talk about, which was less about, tell me what you did in your buddy's name. It was, what was it like? Take me there. So I, I was very precise in the hour and a half. We really couldn't tax them much longer yeah. than an hour and a half. But once I had that interview, I went back and organized the, organized, did a sound script and just sort of chunked the two together and what went. It really, so honestly, once the final transcript was done to a first draft edit script, it probably took two days tops to do. Uh, and I would say 70% of the original script is the movie. It just sort of fell together very easily. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, now, how do you go about doing a casting call, if you will, for 95-year-old vets? I mean, Well, Peter, Peter was the casting director, if you will. Yeah. First off, there's not many of them. We've lost yeah. now, of the 24 people in the, sh- in the film, we've lost six of them since we uh, filmed last yeah. year. But I knew I needed certain people. I needed people who were on, had experienced kamikazes from the receiving end. I knew we had this extraordinary footage of B-29s and P-51s uh, over mm. Japan. So we went after some people there and uh, we knew we had Okinawa and we were lucky enough to stumble our first shoot, even before we were officially greenlit. There was a reunion at the New Orleans World War II Museum of a Uejima Marine Division, the 5th Marine Division. So we were able to do 11 interviews in one day uh, at that reunion. Uh, And that was a long, and I had to fly home to California that night. So that was a long day. And were they, uh, were they eager to, to tell their stories? What's yeah, that? I think so. I think they're eager to tell the stories, but I think some of them realized pretty quickly that I was hunting different game than they were used to in the interviews, but yeah. there was never a reaction against it. Uh, I'm familiar enough with the stories and I have a, such a deep and abiding respect for what they did. Yeah. I tried not to ask stupid questions um, and yeah. I, I could be precise enough. And because I knew once we got going, I knew what a lot of the answers would be. For instance, we talked to you talked about the quote greatest generation. I know for a mm-hmm. fact, having done the cold blue that almost not a single member of the greatest generation thinks they're a member of the greatest generation. They think mm-hmm. it's Matt, it's, it's uh, David McCullough uh, yeah. uh, hype. They just think we had a job to do and we did it. We were tough, tough kids who came out of the depression and for us getting in the army having three squares a day and good clothes was an mm. upgrade. And that's something that I tried to reflect in the film. Now, were they a self-sacrifice? You know, they were a different generation. And I think that's what we use, say, in the yeah. film. They were a different generation. You know, as you said, there's a variety of opinions. Um, they're concerned about what's happening today. Um, it's not just one. I think at least two or three would say something about, well, it was both, you know, all religions or... Democrats and Republicans working together. Yeah, there was you a know? strong, and, and, and I, that would, I asked those questions deliberately. I mean, I did the interviews in October of 19 through February of 2020 yeah. with the election and the craziness coming, but yeah. any sentient human being knew that this fall was going to be a metaphorical bloodbath. I didn't mm-hmm. know it'd become a literal bloodbath in January, but the mm-hmm. film had long since been delivered. But I wanted to touch on that because I wanted the film to be relevant to America today. And one would think that a film that's about uh, World War combat in the Pacific theater in World War II is not relevant. And I really disagree. This film in its own way is a political statement by not being a political statement, if that makes Mm. any sense. Yeah, I think so. And I think, um, I mean, I I recall one of them says, um, you can't understand, you know, because from the American standpoint, I have to always remember I'm living in the UK where uh, World War II was a lot longer um, than than it was for the U.S. But, uh, you know, for, the, for most Americans, World War II was, what, 40, December 41 to September of 45. And yeah. it, the war didn't come home in England, you know. Yeah. I don't know it, how many 
multiple thousands were killed all through 1945 with V2 rockets. It was a much more immediate thing. Uh, The United States never experienced that war firsthand, except for these guys and their comrades in Europe. But as as one of them, I think, says, you know, we had this we had this war, there's beginnings and ends, and then we were in Vietnam for like 16 years or something. You know, they, they don't, these long protracted wars, they don't... Um, well, there was a definition. Don't understand you know, it. Yeah. it was the, quote, good war. It was a war that had a clear beginning, clear bad guys, and a clear ending. Yeah. And we prevailed. You yeah. know, there's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of things. You know, we talk about the uh, bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki because you have to. But again, it's their words, not mine. And mm-hmm. we have one, I don't think I'm breaking reality since the film starts with it. Yeah. We have a Hiroshima survivor beginning and taking us through Hiroshima. Uh, so, you know, there, are, there is ambiguities, but it's, it's a, it was a more clear cut conflict. You have a great press pack, by the way. Uh, and you have, the, you have great quotes from all the, four, the 24 who you uh, interviewed. Uh, and Itsei Nakagawa was a, I mean, that's, he starts off the film singing this folk song, which is, uh, it's from El Cerrito, California. Uh, I've been to El Cerrito. I've spent yeah, a right week in El Berkeley. Cerrito. Yeah, I have uh, friends of mine I've lost touch with, but yeah, I've, I've spent a week in El Cerrito. But uh, a Japanese American who happened to get stuck in uh, Japan for the war and then survives Nag- um, Nagasaki. Hiroshima. Oh, Hiroshima, yeah. Hiroshima. Hiroshima. I mean, that's uh that's amazing. Uh, and then he ends up meeting uh, Frank Oppenheimer, you know, I mean, right, brother of uh, Robert Oppenheimer, yeah. who says that, you know, we've now the genie is out and out of the bottle and can't be put back in. And yeah, his experiences are, you know, yeah, we're so fortunate to have him a part of the film, because in a strange way, he balances things. We would have been wide open for yeah. criticism if we just had American vets talking about killing Japs which mm. is pretty much the way they talk. Again, they yeah. don't pull any punches and you're not going to ask them to. Yeah. But uh, by having his presence in the film, it balances things off to some degree. I mean, that's a, you, you raise the subject in the film, which is you, you had to, it would have been ridiculous if you hadn't about whether it may, whether it was right or not. not. Not so much that you, I mean, but there's this discussion about, was it, you know, they, and they have the different views about whether it was right to drop the bomb or not right to drop the bomb. And it's well, in hindsight, you know, and again, no one cares about my opinion, but in hindsight, everything's different. People didn't know the bomb was going to work when they first yeah. dropped it. People didn't know what it did to people. They'd only tested it two weeks before, three weeks before. So what we now know about the, the impact of the atomic bomb, no one knew when they dropped the first one. Had they known, they still would have dropped it, by the way. I'm just saying, and there's an argument that had they not dropped it, someone was going to drop it. And it was only the the magnitude of the catastrophe Mm -hmm. and of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that literally stopped uh, any further weapons from being discharged. They they were they were like poison gas. They're taboo. They weren't dropped. So you know. And the other point is if you weren't there and you weren't training to do the invasion of Japan, it's, they certainly have a different perspective on the end of the war that pro- most likely are not saved their lives. Yeah. So, you know, I, you can take all things, you know, but the key word here, I think, is hindsight. Yeah. I mean, I thought that was, I had not heard that line, uh, Golden Gate in 48, Breadline in 49. I mean, but Oh, no, they, were, they uh, yeah. Operation uh, uh, Olympic and Coronet, I think, uh, Coronet was the first one, or Olympic was, I forget the name of the operation, but November 45 was the invasion of Kyushu, where hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of thousands of Japanese soldiers were good to go with a massive amount of kamikazes, and they knew exactly when we were supposed to come. Uh, and then they were going to execute the second phase of the operation on Honshu, which is the main island of Tokyo, in March of 46. Yeah. And if the Japanese had dug in like they dug, dug in in Iwo Jima and Okinawa, yeah. uh, the, the war absolutely would have gone on to 47 and 48. It would have ended yeah. with literally the extermination of, of most of the population of Japan. Yeah. And that's not, I have the plans. Uh, you know, I physically have the, this massive 900 page typewritten plans that I got wow. 30 years ago when I did my other project. Yeah. of that invasion. And if you leaf through these plans, uh, it's 
that this was serious. This was no joke. This was no drill, as they'd say at Pearl Harbor. Yeah. That's a very interesting perspective. I'm even remembering from my university days. I mean, it was still very much kind of, um, believe me, I read a lot of stuff saying how horrible it was that uh, the U.S. dropped the bomb and these sort of things. But I do remember my, talking to my granddad about it, and he was in California training to be a part of that uh, Absolutely. Yeah, and part of that invasionary force. And he would say, well, if it hadn't been for that, I, you know, who knows what, have, you know, what well, happened. Well, Paul Fusell, who wrote War Without, uh, the, uh, uh, has written a bunch of books, I forget, The Wartime, uh, yeah. Great War of Modern Memories, a terrific writer, Princeton University professor. Yeah. He wrote a book called Thank God for the Atomic Bomb. And yeah. his point was he was, a, he was in Europe. He was in, uh, in the Battle of the Bulge, was one of those guys. And when that war ended in May, he was shipped back to the United States, refitted, and was on his way to fight again. And he yeah. said, I literally wept when I heard the news, wept tears of joy, because I knew yeah. I was going to live and my friends were going to live too. Yeah. But then, yeah. And then, but at the same time, you, you do, I think the film does show um, the aftermath. Absolutely. Uh, and it, the aftermath was documented by Army. Yeah. Interesting sidebar for, for film history is, I mentioned Greg Toland at the top. Yeah. Uh, the gentleman who filmed the Hiroshima footage was a Japanese cinematographer named Harry Mamura. Harry Mamura came to Hollywood as a son of a rich Japanese. He wanted to get into film. So in 1929, he came to Hollywood to learn the trade of being a cinematographer. And his teacher, Greg Toland. He went back, he went back to Japan in the late 30s. Uh, shot Japanese propaganda films, just like John Ford was doing, worked yeah. with Kurosawa. And then Amazing. when the war ended, they were looking for a, a cinematographer who grew up in Hiroshima. Guess what? Harry Mamura got the call. So when I was putting that sequence together, I noticed the footage was, this is before I knew any of this, yeah. by the way, I noticed the footage was really, you know, they had dollies and cranes and you mm -hmm. know, they were trying, it was shot that the street cars, you seem to have a yeah. fish cars. Yeah. So I cut, I cut the material the way that I felt the cinematographer wanted me to. And then I noticed on the slate, Mamura, and then I discovered the Mamura connection. Wow. wow. That's, that's amazing. You can't even make that up. I mean, you can't even make it up. No. And that there's that one scene where I thought he was going to, you were going to get squeezed by two street cars. I mean, they yeah, put it to, and yeah. I just let the footage go. Uh, uh, I was really flattered. Uh, I forget the gentleman's name, but he's it, Ken Burns is, was his guy, his lead editor. And he is an editor and he just thought yeah. that he loved that footage. And I, I'm sad to say, he asked you, well, how long did it take for you to do that? And I said, about four hours. <laughs> it did. It literally, we sort of threw it together in one day because the footage wanted to be cut a certain way. It was like, well, let's take all the dolly shots and all the streetcar yeah. shots and mix them together. Okay, are we done yet? <laughs> That's excellent. Um, I mean, another, uh, we talked about uh, Itse Nakagawa. There's, um, I mean, all of them were, you, you, and, uh, as you said, unfortunately, but it is, they are in their mid to late 90s. Uh, six have already passed away since you filmed. But uh, there's uh, uh, this Corporal Herschel Woody Williams. Uh, Medal of Honor winning. Yeah, yeah. Woody. Yeah, that, uh, I thought, I mean, it's, uh, it's not even the prospect, but I, what I remember is him saying something about uh, those four hours changed his life forever. Those well, four he didn't even know. Yeah, he, yeah. Had, he had four hours of crazy, insane bravery. You, know, you don't know what you're going to do until the call happens. And he'd already been in combat, so he wasn't a newbie. But yeah. he, did, he was no more, and he'd be the first to admit it, no more heroic than countless people at, at, at Iwo Jima but he happened to be watched. People saw what he did. And when it came down to medal issuing time, he was honored for it. And he absolutely deserves that medal incredibly, but uh, he would be the first to admit, so did so many other of my buddies who either didn't come home alive or there was no one there to see what they did. Mm. And in terms of this, uh, as I said, we were not going to uh, go, uh, I mean, you say it's chronological, tells the this, this story. This, as, as I think you've pointed out, is probably the most brutal part of the war, certainly uh, in terms of the Pacific campaign um, on, on both sides. And I think this film is, brings a lot of humanity to, to, to this that sometimes is possibly lacking. Um, I mean, what is the story you're, you know, besides 
telling the story of of that that those last several months of 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 uh, the Second World War and in the in the Pacific. I mean, what is the what is the story you're trying to tell and that you want listener you know viewers? It's, it's, it's less of a story than I try to tell than what I'm trying to construct. And what I'm trying to construct is a yeah. time machine. You step in the wayback machine in the beginning. You go from black and white into color, and you're in it. You're in the middle of it, and it takes you back to 1945 in a way you've never seen it before without any directorial flourishes, without any barriers between you and the material, save the voices of guys who were there too, who in a year or two won't be around anymore. So if you think about it, the fact that we were able to use this new film technology to restore the footage and be able to talk to the guys who were there about what that footage says will never happen again. If this film hadn't been made last year, it literally would never have been made. Yeah, I think that's, and and I agree with you as well about the time uh, time capsule side of you know time machine element of this because you do feel I did feel transported because the thing, I mean the one thing personally, if if I may add, one thing that really struck me was, you know these. I don't know. Personally, I always have this view that uh, people from the Second World War or, you know, from the early part of the 20th century look different or whatever. But these people look, I mean, this, this could have been filmed yesterday, except for the, you can tell from the, the, the just the way the film looks that it's obviously not, it's not digital uh, originally. But, uh, but there's something about it, the, the, the you know, the, these, these cameramen got like really good close-ups of people. And they shot close-ups. And well, like I mentioned with the Harry Mamura footage, the reason we could edit it so quickly, there were certain sequences where you could see what the photographer was shooting. Okay, tight shot of machine gun barrel, shot of face, perspective shot. You know, we shot the footage. We wanted to honor the photographers who in the heat of the moment were building sequences. And if they filmed uh, a traumatized guy holding a bunny, Mm. rest assured they felt that was of interest. And yeah. I tried to go with their, again, it's a strange combination of complete micromanagement of every frame and image and letting it just kind of flow the way the material wants to flow. So it's sort of a balance when you make a film like this to be all over it and then just to let the material take you where it needs to go. Yeah. And as you said, I mean, as you said, the film's a tribute to these, uh, among, among many things, but is a, certainly a tribute to these cameramen and all many who will always remain unsung, but uh, who in the heat of war did some amazing, amazing work, didn't they? And they did it to bring this back. I mean, I'm sure if you mm-hmm. told, I was very conscious, not only one of the reasons that Discovery uh, released the film theatrically was we promised the guys that it would be in theaters, it would be visible on the 75th anniversary, and they would be able to see it. They know yeah. there's a ticking clock. Yeah. So when I mentioned kind of the odd release pattern of the film, it came out briefly uh, in, in August, September, but yeah. that was as much for the guys as it was for any, you know, there's not a lot of money to be made there. It yeah. was really just because yeah. we promised them we were gonna do this. And when we made those promises, COVID hadn't descended yet. Yeah. By God, we were going to get it out, finish it, and show it to them, and we did. Okay. And uh, I, I'm very pleased that we were able to, and that Discovery uh, let that happen. And now we're in the position where the rest of the world can see it, um, May 27th. Now, we've already discussed this briefly, but uh, now, now looking back on this, and you've interviewed them, and you've put this film together, and other films, um, they don't like to use this term greatest generation. Maybe you don't either, but what do you think of this generation? As I say, I think, honestly, I think that if uh, we were faced with an existential threat like Hitler, I would say Nazism, but we are faced with that threat and we're not exactly passing the test, but I digress. But an alien invasion or something that was just clearly beyond the pale, I'd like to think that the 18-year-olds in America would rise to the occasion and thanks to their uh, ability to video games, they'd probably be better shots than Woody Williams. So I don't think that there's a quantum change in the DNA of human beings since 1945, but there is, there was a matrix that created that era and that time. And if a film like this forces you to examine the matrix and weigh it and make these, have this conversation that we're having, I feel we succeeded in what we're doing. Okay. Well, I think we're, um, we're actually, it's hard to believe, but we're coming 
We're starting to come in to the end of our time uh, together, uh, Eric, but uh, maybe um, while I've got you here, I can ask you, um, so what's it like to work with uh, Werner Herzog? Oh boy. Well, I like to say, you know, if you've seen the Mandalorian on Disney, uh, yeah. you know, uh, that's, that's him, you know, <laughs> it's pretty much an accurate depiction. He's a little nicer in the Mandalorian, you know, he's a little more easy to work with, but uh, yeah. no, uh, let's just say I, he, uh, he upped my game and I think I lowered his game and I think it was good for both of us that that process happened. You know, it's always curious because we've, uh, I've been fortunate to interview people like yourself and others who've worked with, uh, besides your own careers, have worked with some amazing uh, you know, names in the field. And it's always interesting to get a sort of um, a perspective on that. Werner, you know, because he came, from, I had not done a theatrical documentary before working. I came out of television, which is a yeah. whole different communications bandwidth. So doing Grizzly Man, which is our first film together, I, it, it indoctrinated me in a different rhythm. But Grizzly Man, ironically, you know, that was the making of another project. It was the making of uh, uh, the film Treadwell really was making. We used uh, the 100 hours of Timothy Treadwell's footage of bears. And we only screened 10 of it because we were only looking for footage documenting the making of process. And mm. I'm happy to say that we're putting out very soon, uh, it's finished, uh, a three-hour, the movies Treadwell wanted to make, a three-hour. Oh, wow amazing nature of show. So in some ways, Grizzly Man's the prequel or the making of to this film, and they both sort of exist in the same universe. And the only thing they share is uh, the soundtracks for both is Richard Thompson, uh, the great mm. Richard Thompson, who also scored the Colt Blue. So he's sort of my, he's our in-house uh, composer, if you will. So we're very lucky when you speak about working with giants to be able to work with someone of that, that skill set has, has been an honor. Wow, that's that's amazing. I mean, I was going to ask you what's next for you. It sounds like you've got that. Um, any other yeah. uh, big, big well, projects? I wish I could talk about it, but there's another uh, sort of archive-driven project that uh, I'll just hint it has something to do with the Beatles, but it's not uh, what Peter Jackson is up to. It's right. a, uh, it, it would just say it's in the Beatles universe, and it's uh, something we're trying to put together now for next a year from now. And uh, there's some other stuff in the fire. Uh, you know, with documentaries, you have to be so close to the vest because so much of them are subject or topic driven. You know, you can't really sort of, you don't want to let the, uh, the, the cat out of the proverbial bag. Uh, yeah, I do a little work with a, a documentary film, the one, people who sponsor this podcast. And it's, uh, I know where, where you come from uh, on this one. Um, I mean, but the Grizzly Diaries, Diary of the Grizzly Man, that's official. That's kind of, it'll be three hours. Shout Factory is putting it out. It's going to be out oh, sometime. Have... I mean, it's, we've finished remastering the widescreen scoring. They're done. It's just, they're on final approach at this point. So that, that can be announced. It okay. hasn't been announced, but it's coming. Okay. We've actually, I forget what film it was. We had another Shout Factory film uh, that we discussed. Um, I mean, you've, um, you know, uh, obviously, Done a lot with archive and certainly uh, and that's sort of why i asked you the question that how much of this was done pre-covid because as soon as covid hit um that was everything you know um seminars online zoom seminars about how to do archive and things like that you know for young filmmakers or maybe not so young filmmakers um i mean is this do you think this is going to be the trend even more archive heavy uh well, docs archive you know archive is only a good as good as what it archives right so yeah. um you know obviously there's new tools in the toolkit to restore and make archive footage look good but it's what you do with it that counts and i had this particular genre after grizzly man into the into gray state into the cold blue into apocalypse and into this new uh, hopeful beatles project mm. that was on its own track in, in, irrespective of COVID. So all COVID did, I was just lucky enough that it didn't slow us down. You know, we were able to keep the Apocalypse 45 going yeah. because I didn't need any additional shooting. I didn't need to get do interviews, but people are managing to pick stuff up and things will light back up again. So, you know, I think it's not as function of the, the, the material, it's how you use the material in your approach. And I'm fairly 
you know, my style as a filmmaker, I dare I say, is fairly rigorous and I have a certain way of approaching it and a philosophy behind how I use archive. And this concept of constructing a time machine is certainly something I'm very conscious of, just to try to put you back into the moment, into the era with as little distraction as possible. Well, I think you've definitely achieved that. So thank you so much uh, well, for, you. for making this film. Um, one last thing. I mean, if people want to just follow you, what's the best way? Uh, we'll put things in the show well, notes. Uh, but... Google my name and spell it correctly with a K, Eric Nelson at uh, Creative Differences, and it should take you to our website. So okay. uh, as simple as that. But uh, cdtvfilms.com. Uh, but uh, simple Google should... And I'm not saying all the stuff that comes up in Google, I want people to see, but if you want to root around, I'm sure you can find the appropriate stuff. And uh, let's see, my films, uh, I did a film about Harlan Ellison, Dreams of Sharp Teeth, that's on Amazon Prime. Okay. And I did an insane dinosaur animated film narrated by, wait for it, Werner Herzog, right. uh, with Discovery called Dinotasia, that's also on Amazon Prime. Okay. And a gray state was just on Netflix and just when conspiracy culture was reaching its apex and everybody was talking obsessed with QAnon, uh, the contract lapsed. So it just dropped off Netflix uh, on, in December, much to my chagrin. So we're trying to get that back up somewhere so people can see it. Though it's on Apple iTunes or whatever. But, oh, okay. you know, the stuff's out there. Uh, okay. But thank, thank you, Jeff Bezos, to keep my uh, Harlan Ellison. And <laughs> who doesn't want to see an animated dinosaur movie narrated by Werner Herzog. Hey, I've, I've got children, I think. Uh, young, children are dinosaur mad. I think they might be, uh, it might be one for them. Uh, something for dad and something for lad. Okay. Yeah, there, there you go. Um, well, thank you so much, Eric. It's, it's been a joy having you on. Really oh, appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. It. And I, this is a great series. And I wish the best of luck to you, well, you and to Alamo. Well, thank you so much. And best of luck with you. And uh, yes, we'll put some of these... Uh, some links to these films in the show notes. I look forward to catching up with your, uh, your filmography. So just to remind our listeners again, we've been chatting with Eric Nelson, the director of Apocalypse 45, coming out May 27th on Discovery. I highly recommend. Uh, it's certainly not your typical World War II documentary. Um, thanks to a big shout out here to This Is Distorted Studios. Uh, here in Leeds, England. Uh, also, Nevena Paunovic, our podcast manager, who ensures we continue getting such great guests onto the show, like Eric. And um, do uh, please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.